and welcome back to AA Opera Podcast, episode 82. 82, see, you nearly said 81, but you're right, we're on 82. I know. And it doesn't get yeah. any less of a shock each week. The more episodes we do, the more of a shock it is. And each time we meet a new guest, it's the same thing. And especially after today, the amount of technical issues we've sat through, I can't believe we're actually here. So, <laughs> happy days. So, Ashley, how has your week been? It's been okay. Busy, as usual. But, you know, last week we were like, how amazing was New York? It was the best thing ever. And it really, really was. But when you don't check your email for four days, and then you've got a backlog... <laughs> of what feels like an entire month's work uh that can be a little bit stressful so i'm not going to pretend everything's fine and dandy because especially in the world we're in today it's certainly not um but yeah anxiety levels are are on the up this week it's understandable Mm. as you said the way the world is today is (sighs) so ashley and i had a quite intense debrief before recording this because we both feel very heavy about what's going on um probably best we had a little debrief before we came on here uh because it was it was quite vocal um and we're not going to get super political on this podcast but what we are going to do is that we would like to share resources um to help the situation out there so that is what we are doing this week which we'll talk a little bit more uh, later on in the question of the week segment aside from that though avi how are you doing um i've been fine uh generally i just i'm obsessed with the news but who isn't other than that i mean it's been a week i've been working a lot on uh, something that I can't wait to announce because I'm just waiting for the a okay so hopefully next week I'll tell you guys so I've been working really hard on that which is great had a really good singing lesson last week really good do you know when you leave a singing lesson and you're like I'm invincible I do that well ever since we've moved and we might as well give him a shout out we're both studying with Neil Baker yeah and we love he Hale. is an incredible teacher and I every single lesson from lesson one with him I've come out feeling invincible so that's a good sign I know but I just <laughs> felt like I can be the best <laughs> but also I I did have like a bit of a epiphany or like a moment of realization that because I teach so many teenagers and like they're exactly at the point where they're losing confidence in themselves yeah i've learned so much about how to talk to myself about confidence because of how i talk to them oh wow have you have you experienced this and now i've never thought about it in that way if i'm honest but now you have planted that seed in my head and i'm thinking yeah because it is our job as tutors to obviously educate but i'd say and go as far to say 50 percent of that education is the student believing that they can do what you are teaching them and a lot of the time especially i mean yeah 
especially in in what we teach and to older kids teenagers it does get quite complex quite difficult it is it's making them believe and uh I should probably give myself a few more pep talks I could give them (laughs) exactly and I was thinking like why am I able to tell this kid who I've known six months you can do anything you just have to keep practicing you're capable of whatever you set your mind to and just believe like see yourself doing it give yourself the uh ability to be that person yeah what you just said there about the practicing and believing you can do it um i felt very much empowered after listening to this week's guest and a lot of what you said there you know it comes into this week's podcast tara is such an inspiring human being she is a hundred and ten percent if that's possible dedicated to her craft Mm -hmm. and what i learned from this episode was that that's what you have to be if you want to succeed in opera believing in yourself is tip number one always and it's something that i think that we are not taught or or also i went I went shopping recently with a really good friend of mine and we both have lack of confidence in the body we were given. And then I was thinking, if I had a child who had my body, I wouldn't want them to feel the way I do about my body. So why would I be able to tell them that they are beautiful and can do anything and they look amazing if they have the exact same body as me, if they look exactly like me, why are they beautiful and I'm not? Exactly. Uh, with that being said, you've had a little toe dip into this week's episode with Tara, but it is filled with so many gems. And I hope that you listen to this week's episode and feel something, whatever that may be, feel empowered by it, please. Um, we really hope that you enjoy the episode. And here it is. Welcome to AA Opera Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us. We're super excited to have you. Would you like to start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Well, thanks a million for having me. So I'm Tara Arocht. I'm an Irish mezzo-soprano and I've been based in Munich, I suppose, for the last 14 years. Um, uh, So I did two years in the opera studio and eight years in the ensemble as a fixed singer. So that was 10 years in the company and now I kind of travel between Ireland and, and Germany all the time. Amazing. That's that's a really long time. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to, I mean, I'm a big fan, obviously, of the German system in general. Um, But I did 48 role debuts there. So I tried to debut absolutely everything I, that I could and that they would allow, obviously. Um, And a 10 year period, I mean, the voice changes a lot. So you're able to cover quite a lot of repertoire, you know. And when the house knows you that long, they're also more inclined to give you um bigger opportunities so i've done things like ketchen in Werther, which is like two words die van klopstock um to you know Componist rosina cenerentola susanna carabino all the all the stuff that i sing everywhere now so it, it was a real joy and a kind of 
I don't want to say it was easier, but it's really nice to do things on, on home soil with an orchestra, you know, and a company, you know, and because not every production was a, a premier production. So a Vida Aufnahme, a revival in Germany, you don't really rehearse more than a week. So when you make a role debut on a week's rehearsals, yeah, it's it's helpful when you're somewhere <laughs> that you know everybody. <laughs> yeah. But let's go okay. way, way, way back. What was your mm-hmm. first experience of opera? When I was about 13, we went to Verona to see Aida. It was part of like a family holiday. It wasn't the, the whole holiday was around the opera or anything. It was just one of the things that my parents had decided to bring us to, you know, and, uh, you know, 13, I'm, I'm the oldest of three. Um, so we were all quite young, I suppose, to decide to go and see such a thing. But I knew, I knew straight away. At that stage, I had already been singing nearly four years, folk songs and art songs. But I, I loved the spectacle of it and was hooked pretty quick. I mean, you know. if you're looking for a spectacle, I, it is the way to go. So, yeah. <laughs> and in Verona, of no other places. My parents still hold that against me because I... Like one summer, I was like, I'm going to work. And they decided to go to Verona with my sister and I. But I was like, no, 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 I need money. I'm going to stay home and work. And they went to Verona and they saw Aida and they hold it against me till this day. It's amazing. It's it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Really incredible um, place. And so let's talk about your early days of training. So as as you said, you're from Ireland and you are a graduate of the Royal mm-hmm. Irish Academy of Music. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the opera scene's like over in Ireland? Sure. Um, when I was at college, it was kind of right in the middle of the first bank crisis. Uh, or the last bank crisis, I should say. Um, and the opera scene was dwindling to say the least we had lost um opera ireland which at the time was the national company there was still opera in wexford and um, but that that's a quite a very short season they have in in the autumn and so there's very little opera in the country uh during that study period so to speak um i was so lucky to study with veronica dunn who has sadly passed away in the last couple of months um but she was from my very first lesson always saying you know you have to go away to learn this trade you have to go away and she kept saying it was a trade it was the same as being a carpenter or a plumber it's a trade and you have to learn it by watching um so we spoke about the continent all the time so I was really aware that that was going to be the next step you know um luckily for me she allowed me to do competitions both national and international which meant I was also seeing how other students were and what they were learning you know whether that was different technical things or repertoire things we certainly focused the first 18 months only on technique and absolutely no repertoire we did that technique through aria antique so kind of anything later than vivaldi wasn't in my in my realm it wasn't something we were doing i mean i was 18 months in before she let me do any mozart um and sending me you know on summer courses out to italy and that so i was really aware that it was important to look outside of the kind of college setting the academy is really small which was wonderful because it meant you got loads of attention and you got to sing in every class whether it was opera lead or whatever you got good coaching you know you always got plenty of attention um but I was really aware that it was important to know that there was a very very big world with thousands of other opera students also studying at the same time and I needed to get my 
teeth dug in and see what was happening. So when I was in third year of my undergrad degree, I was offered the place at the opera studio in Munich and kind of thought, oh man, I have to finish the degree and, and I still need my singing lessons and I, I mean, what to do? So I went to Ronnie and she was like, oh, we're not going to turn it down. She spoke to them about the repertoire that they would expect from me and it was all stuff that she agreed with and thought was healthy. It was a lot, of, I have to say, it was a lot of like French trouser rolls at the time, like Ciabelle and things. And it was all things that we had kind of already done together. And I was very lucky that the academy made it possible for me to travel over and back and do my exams and continue to see Ronnie while living and working in Munich. It, if I'm honest, it took me two, it took me two years instead of one. But that was just because things got really busy. I had no time to write a thesis, all this kind of stuff, you know, and to try and get home to do a recital of the stuff that was on the selected syllabus was next to near impossible but we got it done you know and because they were patient and understanding with the demands of the job in Munich um you know I'm, I'm quite aware how lucky I was that they facilitated that and that I was able then to do my transition from university to opera studio while still getting lessons from my own teacher all the time you know and Ronnie traveled she came nearly every second week to Munich and she was well in her 80s at that stage you know, so it was definitely a very special situation to be in. Um, however, in the middle of my second year there, Ronnie did say, I'm done now. It's time we have to find somebody else. I've taught you what I'm going to teach you. You have your technical foundation. Um, it was a heartbreaking moment. <laughs> there were many tears in a very public place. It was rather embarrassing. Um, the tears were mine. Um, <laughs> but I realise now that she was so selfless to do that and say, you've got to go the next stretch of the road with somebody else. And I was lucky then to meet Brigitte Fassbender in Munich, who had the fest job that I then got. You know, if you look at the legacy of who had what jobs, like I eventually three or four generations later, got her same fest job, which was a really nice legacy thing, you know. So the role debuts that I made there, you know, like Hansel and Hansel and Gretel, um, Sesto and Clemenza, all things that she had done in the last premiere. So I was able to work with her, you know, she knew the house backwards and forwards. And Munich, I have to say, is a very special acoustic. There's no cheat place on the stage. It's all dreamlike. It doesn't matter where you stand, you can whisper and it will hit right to the back of the theatre. Um, so, but it was really nice to go that stretch also with somebody who knew those exact circumstances, you know. Um, so I was really lucky that I came through a place like the Academy where I met Ronnie and that she was selfless enough to say, we're done now, you've got to go the next stretch with somebody else. I still sang for her at least once a quarter to make sure that we were all in agreement <laughs> of where things were going. Um, but I realize now, and especially from meeting a lot of other people, that not every everybody has that kind of experience, and um, where it's such a harmonious parting of ways or whatever. Because it wasn't really a parting of ways; it was more of a push <laughs> in the right direction. I think also with this this sort of idea of of the push forward, it sounds like from the get go, uh, when you started studying uh, your undergrad. You were always thinking outside of that world of the conservatoire, and I think that's a having been through the system. Oh, yeah. that's a really 
healthy place to be because I think you can get very much in your head at conservatoire and think like this is this is it and this is what you're focusing on but I think because you were always thinking forward it goes to show that getting into opera studio over in Munich whilst that undergrad was happening it goes to show that that mindset is the right place to to be and approach conservatoire sure And there are two very different types of students, you know, they're the ones who arrive at university level who have maybe been private part-time students during their secondary school experience. So they know the university, they know the kind of teaching they're going to get and they're used to the whole conservatory and how everything works. I was not one of those people. So I came, wasn't from Dublin, you know, threw myself in, but at the same time was very aware that I was there to facilitate learning a technique the other stuff was a bonus, <laughs> the theory and whatever else would come along with it. Um, but I knew I went to Dublin to get a technique so as I could go, you know, and I don't know. Again, my first singing teacher, um, a wonderful, incredible lady called Gerlene McGee. She's still alive, well in her 90s. Brilliant lady. Um, she had a beautiful way of explaining to children that your job as a singer is to convey a story, tell a story. But she was always really honest with me about her technique that they're you know she was just kind of keeping the voice in a healthy very forward place and teaching you to breathe there was no placement there was no talk of palate or anything she wasn't interfering with any of that so again I was very lucky when she said it's time we have to hand you over now because the voice has developed to a point where we need to get it placed well and I knew that was exactly what I needed in Dublin because as far as I was concerned I could tell a story (laughs) I already liked opera I knew what I was going to do um and obviously when you get to university there's a, a thousand things being asked of you between presenting certain types of repertoire because the syllabus demands um maybe things you're not particularly interested in all the time but they still have to be put forward for exams and things i understand that can be a bit painstaking but you can never lose sight of the bigger goal you know and i mean maybe this was just something i was told but your superpower in life is your individuality and nobody can ever take that away from you yeah nobody whether whether you learn a technique or not whether you learn anything at college or not that's still your superpower um and it was given to you by nature like so what you have is relevant what you have is worthy of the time uh and it's also worthy of the commitment from the other people around you to help you improve um so even when I would be maybe torn apart in a class or something I always thought this is for your own good like to build you back up because nobody else on the planet can do what you can do you are the only you your two vocal cords are the only ones that look like that in the world I mean it's an amazing thing when you think about it and I think if we could remind enough students to remember that you wouldn't get we wouldn't get so overwhelmed with the oftentimes anxiety that hangs around in a lot of university situations and with the pressure because realistically sometimes it's self-inflicted and sometimes we allow it to come in on us from other people um but you have to remember life will go on after uni as well okay so you've got to think well what do I need to take from this experience Um, and I was quite aware of that what I needed to get from it and what I could leave behind that is such a wonderful way to start the episode like just so much positivity in one answer and like the idea that it's just everybody's journey is different 
but also everybody is different yeah. different and every vocal cord is different like yep oh I'm so excited to keep going on that's this the one. magic though that's the magic of what we do <laughs> so we talked a bit about your time in munich but i actually want to focus in a bit more so while you were there what was it like to be in the studio going from studio to fest and then now living in i mean it was a shock to the system for sure the demands of the position were very different to the demands of being a student um, it was made very clear to us on the very first day that you were no longer a student and you had signed a contract. It was a job. So it was also important that you understood what you needed from coaches rather than being dependent on what they needed, for, uh, being dependent on what they need from you. You know, it was important that you also knew. Um, so every day we sang for the studio coach and then maybe you'd have two or three coachings with other house coaches on roles you were going to do. Now, like I got in there and one of the first things I had to do was a Nina in a Traviata with Angela Georgiou and Simon Keeney's side, Jonas Kaufmann. And I'm thinking, are you being serious? I mean, like, but it was just expected that I would prepare it and present it and it would be ready. And, and you just go on stage with these absolute legends. So I was also exposed to incredibly high standards of colleagues and also colleagues that were under severe pressure because they do sing at such a high standard. So it was a really interesting period of time also just to watch what happened in your surroundings. And I realized from about the very first week that I needed to be sitting in on as many rehearsals and things as I could that were possible, you know, that you were allowed in or whatever, because you learn just as much by watching as by doing. Also to see how people conduct themselves in rehearsals when they're under stress, good days, bad days. It was amazingly interesting to see what was happening. I won't lie to you, the demands of the studio were wild. And I'd say you will never be under as much pressure ever again. And if you can survive those two years, you can survive anything. The shock to my system came from leaving the studio and getting into the ensemble and then being like, what am I meant to do all day? If you don't need me to be in like two different language classes and a coaching all at one time and six hours of a drama class and singing for some sponsor and you know I I mean I kept thinking I was late for something but there wasn't anything <laughs> you know so it took me nearly two years after the program finished to also come down a little bit um but I can tell you my massive advice to anybody would be you do not audition even for a studio program if you do not have a good technical foundation because they can polish anything yeah you know, and they can decorate any house, but there's no point in decorating a house if there's no foundation. And there's nobody there with the time to help you find a technical foundation. So I don't, I honestly don't think it matters. I know that they all have age limits, but I don't think it matters what age you are. Don't go unless you're technically able to do it. I certainly had technique. I had zero polish, <laughs> like in any language, in any style, zero potential possibly um but only technique um and I have seen other people go in with polish polish that possibly also covered their technical weaknesses um and struggle a little bit now they always all manage and find their way but I would just say with the level of stress that it is you're better to go in take an extra year find a teacher that will help you learn to warm up properly you know and go forward that way um 
But I, the German system, I think, is amazing because you won't get so much exposure to so much repertoire for, for uh, as quick as that. Um, and honest, that's certainly though, you know. So when you're singing, I mean, in Munich, I mean, the stars that were in the house, it was wild. And you were expected to go out and sing on the same stage thinking people paid so much money to see them. You know, that you have to be always then striving for the very best that you can. And actually, at the end of the day, what I learned was that, again, it, what it cemented in me was that the most important thing is that regardless of what has happened in your own life that day, is that you go out there and you tell the greatest, the world's greatest story you've ever told. Because the public deserve that. They've paid for it. And it's a service <laughs> that you are going to offer, regardless of what's happened you know, good or bad, or you had a great coaching or terrible coaching or your cat died. I don't know. You know, it's your, it's absolutely your job. Um, and I think in an ensemble, it is inc incredibly helpful to be able to cover so much repertoire. Um, I mean, there's no way I would have done 48 role debuts at this stage in my career had I not gone through such a system, you know? So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the next question is, um, did you find your time in the ensemble in Munich beneficial? I think you've just answered that in what you've just said. Um, but what what did you learn there that has helped you in your career today? Oh, what didn't I learn? I, I didn't know anything about the career before I got in the ensemble. You know, I seriously question whether we should be teaching more about the business at university level and at the same time I already think students have too much to worry about <laughs> when they're actually there so I, I don't know that's a kind of a 50-50 I knew nothing about the business or management or even how the, the how just how any of it worked I, I didn't know um and I learned that on the go I will say working in a system like that where there are as many guest singers as there are people in the ensemble um, you're exposed to a lot of great management as well. So you didn't really have to go, of course, you had to go searching to an extent, but it wasn't from nothing. You knew who represented who and it was easy enough to make contact because maybe you were already in a show with one of their artists or something. Um, what I will say that I learned from being in the ensemble is that our industry is a business. And it's so important it's so important to remember that, that it is not personal, it is business. It is very, um, we're very vulnerable in what we do, but it's really important to remember that it is a business and that when somebody says, no, they're not giving you a contract, it's a business decision. It's not because they don't flip and like you. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, uh, and that's something I believe we should be teaching people much earlier. That already what we do is so emotional that if we take everything personally it will be a disaster and when you're in an ensemble job you don't have the time to take anything personally because there's too much going on <laughs> and while in three weeks maybe they've offered you a Rosina you might also have to do six Zweite before then you know so you're really kept busy and it's wonderful because the stamina you build up in an ensemble job is probably the biggest thing the, it's the greatest gift you can get from from a job like that because you're set then for the rest of your life. Obviously, we've had Corona in between, which that old chestnut. So that sort of 
got in the way a little bit. But the stamina you build in an ensemble job is, oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. That said, I feel I've had a really great rest <laughs> during Corona. And I'd like to think I'm singing slightly better. Um, it's what I tell myself anyway. It gets me up in the morning. But I would advise anybody who was anybody to go and take an ensemble job. Don't run into such a job, but certainly walk towards one. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting the way you say that, because one of the reasons why we started this podcast, well, the main reason was because we didn't understand how the business works. And because academies and colleges prepare you for one thing and they prepare you really well for that but then not necessarily for like the agency things and the management and knowing how that works well look that's ever changing yeah and I think what we also have to remember as students what we have to remember is that an awful lot of the teachers that are teaching their entire world is trying to build instruments you know, and, and, and that's already such a, if I think about that, I mean, that must be so nerve wracking. The responsibility of that makes me a little bit ill, if I'm honest. Um, and, and asking them to kind of try and explain everything else on top of that, I, I find that outrageous. That said, I am still very dependent on Suzanne Murphy, who Suzanne used to teach the opera class in the academy. Um, and I still call her and ask questions. <laughs> you know, if you have a difficult situation with a colleague or a conductor or something or a, and, and you want to know how to deal with that well or you want to talk about new roles or whatever. So I'm still quite dependent on that support team that I had while I was there. But there's no way I had the bandwidth to understand those things when I was studying, you know. Um, and people like that were so busy trying to make sure that you had tools to get into a master's, never mind to, to get a job you know so it's it's a lot to ask of them um and i do think the management thing is changing often i think there there's been a quite a big change since corona because some of the agencies didn't last um a, a huge amount of singers in ensemble jobs don't have any management they do all of that themselves um and it's absolutely not necessary to have management to get a job like that so and it's 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 like a marriage i mean you do not rush into it a relationship like that it's a big big relationship you know um and one of the first questions any manager is going to ask you is what do you want and you have to have really thought about that and I don't think that's something that our bandwidth is ready for at university level because you don't know you're just so happy if someone's willing to pay you yeah. to do something <laughs> you know so it's really it's something I think that also takes a little bit of t just time time as a mezzo myself know? I have a question. Mm -hmm. You've played some of the most mm -hmm. iconic trouser roles. How do you find, and do you have any advice for other mezzos or sopranos who might have to do a trouser role once in their career, um, how to really understand the character and prepare for that for the for that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think number one, we have to remember: anytime you do a role debut, you're not reinventing the wheel. Yeah, it's really unlikely that you're going to find some hidden depth that somebody else hasn't already <laughs> run with. So first of all, relax, right? Second of all, men and women are not that awful different. I know it feels they are sometimes, but they're actually not. Um, I would suggest taking some movement classes. I had a great drama teacher in Munich, Sigrid Herzog, and she helped me with that a lot. Um, men's hips are very different than women's. So a little bit of 
different kind of hip action like they throw their legs out in front of them if women did that their high heel shoes would fall off she kept telling me that um so there, there are little kind of movement tricks that might give any singer the confidence to feel like they're playing it better i will say that i often find men are not play when when we play trouser roles we don't play them vulnerable enough uh and and uh, i certainly know a lot of men that would be much more emotional or vulnerable than than i would ever have tried and play them so it's really worth watching the people around you and if ever you're sitting in a coffee shop by yourself watch watch people see what they do ticks and movements and you know and, and think oh well yeah i fully understand it but if you have brothers or cousins or friends just think about how they are in certain relationships i mean they're vulnerable and and they get hurt and i think the magic thing we can do is try and honor that in the story like really play that story don't don't think about the sex of it but play the storyline you know um but on a basic level you do need some movement help uh, they're also like they're much more from the shoulder blade than women it's, it's interesting but a, a good movement coach couple of classes bam you have those in your toolkit then for the rest of the career we'd also like to ask you about your role as kitty in the harlot's progress by a previous aa opera guest composer ian bell we love ian um, on this podcast mm. um tell us about this role and what is it like to debut a role in a brand new opera so I've done a few new operas, I have to say. Ian and I had met a couple of times before the score was finished. Um, it's a dark story. <laughs> dark. And I don't think I slept from the day we started rehearsals until maybe three weeks after the performances had finished. It broke me a little bit mentally I found it so dark it's so dark and we had this one scene where Mary McLaughlin had to try and drown me in a bucket of feces um I never was in it I mean it was literally my forehead yeah it was only all an act but the whole thing got in on my head I took it all far too serious it's the first time when I've fallen into a role and couldn't get out it's a very strange experience but I was so lucky to have somebody like Mary there who was 900 times more experienced than I and was able to kind of kick me out of it I mean her first thing was okay we have to change your surroundings. And she went and bought me all this lavender stuff, a lavender candle and pillow spray and all. And she was like, we'll, we'll set it up then that you go into your house and once you light that candle, your senses change and you kind of come out of it. And she was so right. You know, it was she had all these amazing tips because I was not sleeping. I was so sad. I was so sad for the whole character. Just the whole story was so sad. <laughs> and Ian was so excited. <laughs> and I was so excited for him but I was so sad oh my lord like when oh my god when we when we finally went on stage to do the scene where she's about to do the mad scene and die I was not well I was not fit for that my heart was broken and Deanna like threw herself into it physically vocally mentally you name it like I believe she was losing her marbles so it was an incredible experience. Vocally, he wrote so well. Ian really gets to know you. He gets to know the limitations of the voice and he never even goes near them, which I loved. He kept it really safe because probably he knew it was going to be emotionally vulnerable. And it was incredible. It was an incredible experience because the team was also amazing, you know. Um, and I, I'll never forget the Zitz probe. 
And I was so excited for him, for Ian. It was like Christmas. It was the sweetest thing. And it was so exciting to hear what he could hear in his head when you finally heard the orchestra, you know. Um, creating a role is a gift, you know. Um, and it's also terrifying. But that was my first one, my first new one. And <laughs> I probably went too far. Um, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But it was a emotional commitment. It was not vocally taxing. It was beautifully written. Beautifully, beautifully written. It was no issue. Um, and again, I have to thank Ian for the time and commitment he spent to getting to know you, your instrument, your character. Try and, you know, write around that because he made it so comfortable then vocally that you could hape yourself into the character of it, you know. But I'm still not over it. <laughs> what? Um, I, I guess, I mean, fantastic answer to that question, um, by the way. But um, I think, obviously, you've talked about building that relationship with Ian and he got to know you. And that is one of the real gems about doing a, a new opera and that you get that, you get to speak to the composer, which in a yep. lot of our music, you don't. So that's, yeah, one of the best things I would imagine. I will um, say, yeah. I will say, I do not believe young singers should do too much new music unless their teacher tells them they are technically able to do that. Okay? Mm-hmm. The thing with learning, the thing with learning music that's already been done you can read a bazillion books and it'll say, okay, you need to have really clean Italian vowels and you need to have whatever. There's, there's a huge amount of the work done for you already. When you pick up something with new music, if you have any technical weaknesses, there's no research, there's no tradition, there's nothing to save you. And it will bloody well shine if there's a hole in your in the voice somewhere or if there's something. It, it will stick out. Um, and it's so important with new music that you take it to your teacher and you take it to the coaches that know you so that they can make sure that you're working it in super healthy because you're creating what will be the tradition. It's a really big responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think young singers, it's probably a very good mathematical experience, but unless your teacher says 120% you're technically ready, don't touch it. For, for anybody's sake, it's not good for the composer or you or anybody. You know, so I'm just putting that out there. It's probably a tick controversial, but it's on the airways now. <laughs> you were actually celebrated for two separate roles, Rosina and Angelina, within the same productions of La Cenorentola at Vienna State Opera. You were named the New Bel Canto Queen, which is such a nice review to have. Can you tell us about your approach to the Bel Canto style? Sure. They were both roles that I learned when I was at college um, for summer courses. So I learned them with my teacher. The reason we learned them was because she said they were the two roles that would facilitate all vocal growth through kind of scale work, if we're honest. Um, Her one and only rule was, come hell or high water, you do not push. So if there is no chest, you leave it go. If the top is a little bit on the watery side, you leave it go. And thankfully, I listened to her and the voice grew into it. Um, so I suppose, if I'm very honest, they are my two most 
how do I say organic sounding? Can you say that? Like they, they're the, they're the two roles where if you heard them ten years ago and you heard them now, you'd hear the difference. Um, I change cadences as I go. Sometimes I change them between the shows if I'm a bit bored. Um, they I I just I just laugh them out. I don't even have to worry about them. It's amazing. I love them so much. Um, they weren't easily learned especially the first act finale of Cenerentola, that Parlar Pensar, I sing every day still to this day. I sing it every single day in case somebody wants me to <laughs> do it, you know, next year. Um, it's really important that, like I did not have a flexible voice. Every bit of that's learned. I didn't have natural coloratura. I don't, be, I don't even know that, well, maybe it is, maybe some people do, but I certainly did not. So that was every day. I practiced every day. And I feel so bad, like sometimes I do master classes and people are like, oh my God, what's the trick? And you're like, oh, it's really easy. You have to practice. <laughs> um, certain Rossini color tour comes up in every show he did. So once you're able to do your groups of four, uh, you're fine. Groups of six and triplets. Um, I'm still not amazing at triplets. Um, but you have to do it every day. Every single day. And not, 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 you know, <laughs> just lightly, like you're humming Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Because that's what Rossini should be. It should be absolutely not taxing. Any bel canto should not be taxing. What taxes it is the emotion. What's taxing is the vulnerability of emotion. It shouldn't be ever taxing on the voice. However, all of us singers know that <laughs> oftentimes things are taxing. So we have to ask why are they taxing? Or what are we doing that's making them taxing? Um, especially when you are doing something for the first time, maybe the voice isn't ready. Maybe the voice can't do all the things you want it to do. So don't make it. Leave a little hole in it. The voice will grow into it. And that's the difference of going to hear somebody sing something at 25, 26 or 35, 36 and then 45, 46. You know, there's no shame in, in not being able to do everything. But bloody hell, there's big shame in not telling a story. But bel canto, just do not, just do not push. Just, just try and keep it light and commit to the story. I've, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I think, I think practice makes perfect. The, the old yeah. saying, you know. I wish <laughs> practice makes slightly better. <laughs> but it's also the approach of how to, because I, whenever I look at bel canto, I don't have a very flexible voice. My voice likes long lines. Let's stay uh -huh. and sit. And enjoy the time on this one long note. But it's the it's the looking at the page and going, how 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 much mm -hmm. was sing all of that now? And how much was be creative enough to make something yeah. up on top of that? Well the main thing is colour only works when it has a meaning. Otherwise it's just a scale. And who the hell wants to pay to hear scales? Well, certain people I probably would pay to hear their scales. But um, first of all, you have to find the melody. So you cut out all the crap. It's generally, this is a very generalized thing to say now. It's generally the first note in every four. So you let the other three notes go and you work out your anchors in the phrase. And you make your story around the anchors. What is it? Is she crying? Is she laughing? Is she palpitating? Is she or he anxious? Are they excited are they what whatever you know um however when you are starting i mean i'm really looking at something for the first or second time leave the character at home you have to note bash you know you cannot 
do 22 things at once. And it's like when you're teaching a child to walk or we're not also teaching them to run at the same time. First thing we do, we help them to stand up. Once they're standing, we teach them to put one foot out in front of the other. So the first thing you do, you sit at the piano, bang the notes. Interesting. Next thing you do, you sit down and you find your anchors, the actual melody in the coloratura. Third day, maybe, maybe we try and stick in more than one in those four notes. You know, it's a really slow process. But the thing is, you've got to be thinking, this is a role I can sing for the next 15, 20 years. So it's worth this kind of hard slog because... I'll do this work once and then it's in forever. P.S. It's also in wrong <laughs> forever. So it's worth taking your time to really know that you're doing something right. Um, and if something looks overwhelming on the page, break it down. It's better to have done four bars well than four pages. Just, you know, so take your time. Take your time. It will be worth it. It will so be worth it, but it takes daily slog. I also don't believe in practicing for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on end. You do 45-minute sessions and 15-minute breaks, and you do max four of them in a day. To be honest, two is probably plenty. Um, but 45 minutes of good concentrated work is better than five hours of poofing about. It's better for the muscles. So take your time. <laughs> There's no trick. It's really sad. No, but that's good. It's a good reminder. Now let's go across the pond. We'd love to talk about your time over in the States. Uh, you've done title roles at Washington National Opera, followed by several seasons at Metropolitan Opera. What do you like most about performing on the American stages? Um. Okay, let's start like this. First of all, they're a damn sight bigger. That was my first shock. Second of all... um. They're all union houses, so the rules are, are different. That, that was a learning curve. Not not bad different, but just something that we're not taught. Um, and, and something that's different house by house. So the first couple of days are really like you're dependent on everybody to kind of help you learn the rules and, and who does what and all the rest. Um, even for a revival, they rehearse much longer than we would in the, on the continental system being irish in america is quite epic just by birth don't know what it is it's amazing um but my relationship started with the american public through recitals and what i loved was how open they were to storytelling of any kind i would go with big german lead abende and then just a few irish encores or whatever and they go mad and i thought this that, that excited me beyond belief um I knew that when I was going to make my opera debut over there, it had to be with one of my girls, one of my Rossinis. So I was really lucky that it was with Chen and um, because I had the space to tell a great story and I knew they were trying to focus it to bring younger people in and it was it was wonderful. Even the outreach things we did were, were great. Um, so I like how open they are to being entertained. You know? That the entertainment factor is really important for them and that they're open to your stories. Um, the Met is such an epic place <laughs> you know and a famous place and, and so obviously you arrive there shaking in your boots but actually it's grand you're warmly welcomed by everyone and it's the same as every other theatre then you know so you can chillax into it and enjoy yourself the first day or two on stage was petrifying when you look out and, you, and they kept telling you to keep your chin up every so often because you forget like that there's like 
three or four more balconies. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, all those people up there. Um, but acoustically, it's beautiful. Uh, and to be honest, the, the work's not any different. You know, and you're still paid to do the same job, but it's to get out there and tell a great story. Um, they're so hospitable. Oh my goodness, they're so hospitable. It's really, it's really lovely. It is lovely. Um, and and loads of American people are Irish, so they they all just want you to talk, which, funny enough, is something I can do. <laughs> Having launched a series of professional development talks for singers yourself last year, can you share with us any advice for young singers starting out? Sure. I mean, look, there are a few basics, right? There's no miracle work and you have to practice. However, that said, there's absolutely no shame in not knowing how to practice. And if you do not know how to do that, you ask. Your teacher is like your interim husband or wife and partner and everything else your guru for the minute (laughs) and there is no shame in saying i don't know how to warm up or when i practice by myself the voice gets tired what 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 am i doing you've got to set yourself up with an open and honest and transparent relationship with your singing teacher that's step number one and it's really important to learn that step number two you have to know how to practice. The first session in my professional development thing was just on practice. And I'm sure people were like, what? I tell you, if you do not know how to structure your practice, you will not, you will not stand a chance. Because, for example, I'm currently actually in my coach's house here. <laughs> I'm taking a break while we're coaching Sandrion. I have to learn Sandrion. I have a brand new all Schubert recital program that needs to be off by heart by the 1st of May. And on the, se- on the 2nd of May, I start rehearsals for Maria Stuarda. Um, and I'm trying to prepare all of that all, all at the same time, which is wild, especially after COVID. But anyway, if you do not know how to structure your practice, you can't do that, you know. So getting to know yourself now and what works for you or doesn't is really important. Do you work well in the morning or in the evening? Um, you know, what annoys you? What, are, are we being a little bit stubborn? Um, can we take correction? These are all things that we have to ask ourselves um, that will pay off in the long run to know. If you have big dreams, don't let anyone stamp on them, but you have to find people around you that are going to be honest with you. And if you do something that is under par or not good enough, you need to know that that's fair enough that they tell you that. It's really important, really, really important to surround yourself by people who will tell you the truth. Um. The career is hard, I'm not going to lie. It's amazing. If there's anything else, anything else you can see yourself doing, go and do it. I know that's a little bit harsh, but I mean anything. Go and do it. Because even when COVID came, and, and even though I and I got it, and I was not well, and people in my family were really not well, but I could not stop thinking, when the hell was I going to get back? I need to get back. I need to sing for somebody. I need to do something. Uh, it's like a drug. It's an illness. Good and bad, yeah? And I think it's really important that every student sits themselves down and says, okay, what do I want to do? Because the good days are amazing and the bad days are shocking. But even on those bad days, the only person that's going to pick you up is yourself. So you have to know you are great. You are an individual. You have something to offer. And you're brave enough to stand behind that thing you have to offer, even if people tell you maybe it's not their taste or it's not 
something they'd pay to hear. That's okay. There are other places. But if you don't believe, nobody else is going to believe. So you've got to have some big conversations with yourself. It's really, really important. Really, really important to do that. And I know it sounds a little bit harsh. But there's no shame. There's no shame, for example, in studying music and going and doing something else. It, it's, it's always going to be good for you. But you have to know that you can stand behind the faith you have in your abilities to tell a story, to perform, whatever that might be. Because if you don't have that faith, it's going to be very hard for other people to have it for you in big enough volumes that will make you successful. You know? Um, God, that sounds a little bit negative. Because uh, I am positive, let me tell you. No, no matter what happens, I will find some little grain of some sort of positivity in it. Um, but that is because I'm addicted to this. Like, it's, it's my drug. You know, even on the worst days, I get up and I go back the next day. Because I'm mad for it. <laughs> Have you got any exciting engagements coming up? What's next for you? I do. I mean, this season I still have two role debuts. I've Sandra on Paris in a new production. First time it's ever been done at um, Opera de Paris, which is a bit terrifying, but wonderful. Um, uh, I am going to do my first Maria Stuarda at Irish National Opera, which is also terrifying and wonderful. Um... And that's just in this season. I have some very exciting role debuts over the next season or two. I'm not allowed to say what they are, but they are definitely, keep your eyes peeled. They are exciting. Um, I'm not a massive um, bel- believer is the wrong word, but I'm going to say I'm not a massive believer in fach. I think you sing things that you can sing and you can play. And that is going to become more evident <laughs> over the next couple of years. That also to be, and I am a mezzo, okay? I am a mezzo, no question. Um, but I have already sung Susanna, Elvira, you know. So I certainly will be flirting a little bit more with the lines of what I am going to do. <laughs> and where can people find you online to follow what's going on and, and keep their eyes peeled? So I, I mean, it's, we don't know what's getting really sad. Like the younger people, people are like, oh yeah, I don't have Facebook. Yeah, it's the thing my granny has. Um, but Facebook, <laughs> Tara Rocked, Facebook, um, Instagram, Tara Rocked, Twitter, Tara Rocked. Um, I'm not a Snapchatter or a TikToker. Uh, I was going to say TikTok is the TikTok is the new Facebook, I guess. Right. However, you guys, I will say, and I'm not blowing my own horn. Totally, totally blowing. I just did a very, very interesting Instagram takeover for the Bayerische Staatsoper performance of Schweigsame Frau last week. I will save it in my highlights. I'm not, I posted like 56 stories. It nearly killed me. Super dangerous to do such a thing during a show. You definitely need an assistant. Um, totally nearly missed one entrance because I was busy making a film of the backstage guys. Anyway, um, I tend to do as much backstage thing and answer as much student questions as possible on Instagram you can reach out I will eventually come back you do already have experience in this yeah um you might have to remind me a few times but I will come back to you and but anyone can reach out on Instagram I I will answer anything I can yeah Yeah. amazing this has been so incredible thank you so much for coming on well thank you very much not at all not at all 
And if you ever need anything, come back to me, you know. Please, listen, that's the only way to do it. <laughs> Thanks, Tara. So this week's question is more of a call-in to share resources uh, to help the situation in Ukraine. Um, so we asked on our on our feeds this week, um, share how to support Ukraine from your local community. Um, as me and Avi had a chat at the start, we just feel like we want to help. I'm sure many of you are, are feeling the same way. So we just thought we'd share some ways that you can do on a local level. Sometimes also you just are <laughs> overwhelmed by wanting to help, but you don't know where to start. So there are a bunch of different places to look first off i'm gonna say unicef because it's a big organization and they have a lot of manpower and therefore their help can really go a long way yeah you've also uh, got the red cross as well so these are big organizations uh, and there's a lot of links being shared around on social media if you can't help financially do a little bit of a spring cleaning and find things in your house that you do not need um, and maybe pass them along so that, you know, people who've lost everything could have a bit of something. Yeah, speaking of that, I think social media, especially Facebook, you know, you have like community pages on Facebook, residence pages, check those out and see if there's any local drop-off points. Uh, I know that there's there's lots and lots and lots around London um, if you are in London there's um, there's several Ukrainian houses uh, in Holland Park Stratford Twickenham uh, Hounslow and Barking um, so just just give them a google or just check out where collection points are happening in your local area I would also suggest to look at religious communities so synagogues and churches and mosques, because um, they also will probably try to help their local communities in Ukraine as well. Yeah, and I think just being mindful at this time, just to, to round off and say anyone with a heart feels something towards this, but there's millions and millions and millions of people and families that are directly affected and could be thousands of miles away from family in Ukraine. Um, also um, to Russian people as well, who are clearly ag against this war. So just be mindful of anything that you do post on social media, if that's what you choose to do. Um, just be mindful of, of your audience and, and the way you approach this topic yes okay it is my turn to know it all as i do take it away <laughs> take it away so i am taking it away by talking about surprise surprise the ukrainian opera house so the Ukrainian National Opera House. I have gotten a lot of, I've gotten all of this from their website, which is really extensive. And they have like the whole history much better than Wikipedia on their website. So the history of the National Opera of Ukraine commenced in 
1867, when numerous petitions addressed to the government yielded the creation of a regular opera trope in Kiev, which was then one of the significant centers of the empire. That is the Russian one. The first music theater appeared beyond the empire's capitals, Moscow and St. Petersburg. In summer 1867, Kiev saw the establishment of the first Russian regular opera trope headed by a former singer and impresario, Ferdinand Berger, an outstanding theater craft manager. He asked many talented artists to join the new theater. The city council allocated the city's theater to the trope. The 27th of October, according to the Julian calendar, or the 8th of November, according to the Georgian calendar... I love how it's completely <laughs> different calendars, but the same names yeah. to all the months. Uh, became a celebration day for Kiev citizens and a historic date of Ukrainian culture. It was the day when Kiev Opera raised its curtain for the very first time. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear people were celebrating in the streets over that. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> However, the trope did not neglect the European classics and performed the Barb of Seville, by Rossini, The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, The Marksman by Weber, and Lucia de la Marmour by Donizetti, and a succession of operas by Verdi, who became the favorite composer of Kiev audience on a considerably oh. high level. Oh, mm. I don't blame them. I don't blame them either. Um, on the 4th of February, 1896, after the morning performance of Yevgeny Onyegin, the theater building caught fire. The fire spread in a matter of seconds, and in a few hours, the city theater constructed in 1856, according to the project of the architect Strom, was burnt down to cinder. The fire devoured... Wait, the fire divided... One of the Russian emperor's best music libraries, costumes, and sceneries of many plays. I mean, uh, right, I'm just saying, we've been doing this know-it-all segment for about five weeks or something like that, even four weeks, maybe? Right, mm -hmm. why in two of them have we talked about burning down, like, opera houses that have burnt down? Honestly, like, get the fire curtain out, guys. Stop it. They didn't have them. <laughs> yeah, we'll let them off back then. At least it wasn't three, like the Royal Opera House. <laughs> yeah, this is just the one time. Well, that is all for episode 82 of AA Opera. Thank you so much to Tara for joining us and giving us so much good chat. It was such a good interview. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, make sure that you uh, rate this podcast and subscribe to us. That's going to really help us out. Any five-star review is always welcome. Also, you, if you would like to support us, check us out on Patreon. We are patreon.com forward slash AA Opera. And you get some really fun goodies. The more people are there, the better the goodies. 
that is for sure exactly i mean it is our pleasure to bring this podcast free to you every single week but it is definitely not free to create so if you can support us we'd really appreciate that uh head over to our social media we're aa opera everywhere and if you want to get in touch you can email us at aaoperapod at gmail.com and make sure that you're subscribed to our newsletter as well yes all right and we shall see you next week we'll see you next week guys stay safe everybody bye bye